Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I'm just going to jump right into it. If you have Bibles, uh, can you go with me to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. How many of you have your physical Bibles? All six of you. Very good. We'll get there. I encourage you to pick up a Bible. Uh, this is a really good one. St. KJV, which I believe it's the, the best translation. And it's leather. Very nice. Uh, most of you are unbothered by translations, but it's an internal thing among a few of us. But First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Interestingly enough, that translation is not NKJV, it's NIV. But anyway, <laughs> so ironic. Okay, uh, I'll just read through this quickly. Um, I know I have a lot of ground to cover, but uh, I think there's something uh, really profound that I want us to step into as a committee at the end of service. And so I want to get through this uh, as quickly as possible and, uh, and then get there. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you all ready for this? No, no, no. Okay, let's go. First Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, love by God that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Next slide. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the, most, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's, that's not Achai Boa. <laughs> Am I pronouncing it wrong? Achai? Yeah, you know, I'm not basic. Um, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and whatever that is. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised on the date, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, just a quick exercise to start before we get into the meat of things. I want, us, I want us all to close our eyes for just a moment. Just a moment, just close your eyes. I want you to think of a person uh, whom you love, uh, really deeply and really dearly that you have not seen for a really long time, maybe several months. Uh, maybe the person lives really far from you uh, in another country or, you know, you live in Burdock, the person lives in Sengkang and you'll never go in Sengkang. So you don't see the person for months. Sorry to make this funny, but close your eyes. Uh, think about a, a person that you miss, that you, you love. Uh, uh, yeah, I've not seen for a long time. Just think of that. Okay, everyone has a person in your mind? Okay, now I want you to think of one uh, attribute about the person uh, that, that you really, really appreciate, admire, and love. Okay, everyone got something? Cool. Okay, um, eyes up. All right, um, 
maybe just a couple of you just shout out like maybe that the the person who the person is to you and that one attribute anyone you get participation marks <laughs> sure you can raise up hands i like polite yeah i'm oh, sorry Oh, that's awesome. That's very cool. All right, anyone else? Maybe from this side? Yeah. He I was thinking of um, a really dear friend, Peter, and his amazing generosity. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, maybe one from that side to just balance it out. Anyone? Anyone? Person that you've not seen in a long time? Someone who prays. Uh, we used to pray together. And, okay. Uh, so who is that person to you? Uh, a friend of ours, uh, mine, a co-worker. Okay, very cool. So a co-worker who is um, a real uh, you know, brother in prayer. I, that, I think that's awesome. So, you know, mom, kindness, and a friend that's very generous. Now, um, it's interesting, right? You know, I, I think, you know, even as you thought of these people and these attributes came to mind, you know, these things, these attributes I don't think are like peripheral ones, but they are ones that has really impacted you. There's one, there are ones that, you know, when you think of the person, that attribute automatically comes to mind. You know, when you think of your friend, Peter, you think, Generosity, when you think of mom, you think kindness. Uh, and that's awesome. Now, you know, in the text that we just read, you know, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were writing to the church in Thessalonica. And you know, we read through this entire chapter, this amazing text. And uh, it's just loaded with their affections, their, the thoughts that come to mind as they thought about the church in Thessalonica, right? You know, amazing stuff. It says this, you know, in, in, the, in the first slide, it says that, uh, you know, that they were a community of faith hope and love, that their labor, their work was defined by faith, by hope. Can we, can we just push to the first slide? Thank you. Uh, yeah. Faith, hope, and love, you know, that trifecta, you know, that we see all through Paul's writing, faith, hope, and love, but it adds an additional dimension where it says, your works produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. You know, how many of you can say our labor is prompted by love? Most of the time, our labor is prompted by, you know, anxiety or fear, and your endurance is inspired by hope. You know, you, it's a comedy, you know, with, with, with uh, not who doesn't just walk simply in words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The next slide says this, that, that this committee has become imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Spirit. Uh, it says that their faith in God has become known everywhere. You know, that these people, right, you don't even need to... Uh, uh, say anything because of the kind of reception that, that they had given to people, you know, that kind of radical hospitality. And it says this, this killer verse, they, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Can you imagine that when you ask, you know, like, hey, what's that community about? Or what's so special community? It's like, oh, you don't know them and they turn from idols to serve the true and living God whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now this uh, the thoughts uh, that come to mind uh, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy thought about the church in Thessalonica. This community of faith, hope, love, of power, of conviction, of ones who took the word of the Lord seriously, who turned from their idols, who walked in radical hospitality. These were the people in the church of Thessalonica. And I'd like to start off with a really, really simple question. What would you like to be said of you? of our church in this time, in this moment in history, what would you like for us to be known for? 
what would you like to be known for as a church? What are some thoughts, some feelings that you would love people to experience even as they think about you, our church? You know, think about your friends, think about your family. What are some thoughts and feelings that come up when they think about you? In this moment in time, what would you like it to be? Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you uh, in this moment, even as we uh, dive into scripture, God, that this is not a vain uh, study exercise, but God, this is a moment in time where we are intentionally posturing our hearts and our minds to experience you. So God, we ask that uh, you will come by your spirit to meet with us in this place. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here and we invite your rule and reign. We invite your kingdom to come. Your kingdom is not just the place in which you dwell, but it's your rule and reign. It's not just the king's domain, it's the king's dominion. So we invite the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ to be established in this place. But beyond this place, we ask for it to be established in the world that we live in. Anything that contradicts your kingdom, we ask for these things to, to be demolished in the mighty name of Jesus. And God, as your people, we echo the prayer to which you taught your disciples. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we believe that it is a reality we can experience in the here and now. So God, we pray, bold prayers of faith, come, Come in power. Come like the wind. Come establish your kingdom on the earth. God, we ask in this moment that we will experience you. But beyond that, we pray that we will know you through your word and through your spirit. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That's still good with me. Right, I'll show you some pictures. Pictures. Very good. These are three random pictures. Right, uh, the first picture is a picture of a McDonald's. Anybody know where that McDonald's is at? Brass Passa, very good. This is a Brass Passa McDonald's. This is a, I think it's a pretty uh, updated picture. Uh, next slide in the middle, I think 20% of you would know where there is, but where was that? Cornerstone, right? That's the altar area uh, in Cornerstone Community Church where a good chunk of us grew up there and uh, spent a significant uh, number of years as a youth there. Uh, and then the last one, none of you will be able to know this. Uh, uh, it's a egg. Huh? Wow. How you know? <laughs> uh, yes, but that's uh, Club Med at Sheraton Beach. Uh, you know, that's a, a, a lounge area near the pool, uh, pretty far away from the bar. You know, it's near the pool, near the pool. We drink water near there, uh, near the pool. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I put up these three uh, random pictures, you know, that, that honestly, I think maybe short of like two of them, uh, short of one of them or all three of them would have little to no meaning to you, right? But these three places are, are actually carry deep, profound meaning for me. Now, uh, McDonald's, that Brass Passa place was, uh, if you can see that, that little uh, bit of road uh, next to the pavement, that was actually where I got hit by a car. You know, that was where, uh, you know, I, I tell this story often, and if you're new, I, I just, I won't bore you the details, you can chat me afterwards, but you know, I had a friend who well-meaning said, like, Andre, do you know where you're gonna go if you get hit by a car and you die and end up you know where you're going to end up. And I was like, I don't know. And then uh, that night after he shared with me that encouragement, and the encouragement in the afternoon, I got hit by a car. And then long story short, you know, that was how I got saved. You know, I was impacted in a big way. And, you know, I, I, 
rolled into the kingdom of God. And so that, that's, a, that's a really uh, pro- powerful place uh, for me, you know. I remember my first week into dating Amy, and I brought her to this place, and I was like, this is where I nearly lost my life, you know, and it became a really romantic moment, so, you know. <laughs> Pro tip, pro tip. Uh, you know, and in the middle, of course, you know, that altar, that altar has such fond memories of the altar. How many of you have, to have those memories of, of the altar as well, right? You know, like, just profoundly meeting with the Lord. You know, I remember times uh, in those meetings where my face would be, would be planted on that wooden floor and I'd be so afraid to look up because, you know, the fear of the Lord was so present in this place, that weightiness of His presence. Uh, you know, I remember that altar so well because it's wood and then, you know, when people cry and mucus drop, you know, it's definitely unholy to take a tissue and clean it up. Uh, but in these days, you know, and especially in this moment, you should clean up your mucus. Uh, but, you know, we just let it roll, you know, and like let it overflow. And, you know, like, you know, it's a good meeting when you walk up to the front at the end of the meeting and you have that stickiness and the soles of your feet is like, oh, yeah, man, revival. You know, and, and so uh, I remember that, 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 that front section of church so well. And the last one, you know, Sheraton Beach, you know, I put it up there. Uh, you know, I, and many of you know the story, uh, some... Uh, well, gosh, it'll be eight years ago, you know, I was on a family vacation and I was really praying into what uh, my next season of life would be and where to give myself to. And I had a profound encounter and visitation with the Lord in Club Med, man, you know. The Lord, man, He's able to move even in the most, like, hedonistic of places. But, you know, I was there, just joking. Club Med, if you're listening, love a free trip. Uh, sponsored. Uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, I was there and I was sitting actually in this very seat, you know, and I had that moment with the Lord uh, and, you know, that, then, you know, that's all she wrote. And I signed up for ministry school, gave my life uh, to, to uh, a calling and you know, that's why I'm here today. Now, these three places, they mark really significant moments in my life, one of salvation, one of uh, encounter and one of calling, destiny and purpose. Now, these places are so significant to me and uh, I wonder whether for, for yourself, you know, whether you have these places as well, right? Places, physical places on earth, on planet earth that you can point to that you go like, hey, the Lord met me there. This is where I met God powerfully. This is where I received my calling. This is where I first experienced the power of God. I wonder right now, even as I'm talking, whether these places, these images are coming up in your head. You know? And if they do, I encourage you to even revisit these places you know, and recount and relieve those moments. It's so important for us to feed ourselves on these stories of encounter and breakthrough. Why? Because you know, when you live in a drought, you need to remind yourself there's such a thing as rain. Thank you, brother. You know, they, <laughs> I have a feeling five seconds from now, you're like, oh, yeah, pretty good. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, well, you know, that, and this is not just an Andre thing, right, where, you know, I, I remember these sacred places. Uh, you know, we see all through Scripture, uh, men of God, all through the Bible would uh, remember these sacred places, places where they had profound visitation, places where God came through for them in a powerful way. They would remember these sacred places. We see this practice all through Scripture as well. You see, you know, we know, we are pretty familiar with the story of the Bible, right? You know, when God first created the human race, we had direct access to God. Adam and Eve had direct access to God. It says in the Bible that God walked with them in the cool of the day. Think about it, man, you know. Like God comes up to and was like, how's your day? And he's like, solid, you know, and then they walk, you know, and so intimate, direct access, right? 
You know, we're familiar with the story of scripture, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and believed in the lie of enemy, and then they were banished from Eden, which means they no longer had direct access and connection to God. They lived in God's world, but were without God. Now, here they are, Adam and Eve, wandering the planet, longing for connection, longing for access, longing for the transcendent, and God, because of his great love, would meet with them. He would pursue them. He would go after them. And all through scriptures, whenever God would encounter people, people would mark it. They would mark it. They would say, this is the spot where God met with me. This is the spot where I experienced the transcendent. They had a vision for recording these events and making sure that not just themselves, but their descendants remember it as well. It can be in the form of erecting a memorial, like a power of stones, renaming a place, or building an altar. And we see this pattern repeated all through scripture. Whenever God met with a people in a powerful way, they would build an altar and offer sacrifices to their God. Scholars call this practice memorializing theophany. Memorializing theophany. You know, memorializing is a word that we all familiar with. You know, it's memorial. But theophany, that word theo is God and phony meaning experience. Memorializing your God experiences, your God moments. It is to say that though this place looks normal, ordinary, something sacred and profound happened here. And I want this to be remembered for generations. Now, for the rest of the message, I'm going to take my time not too much time to unpack a solid theology of altars. How many of you have a theology of altars? There we go, there we go. These people do. Yeah, theology of altars. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some verses and unpack it, and I'll take us somewhere. Uh, today, you know, this is week four of uh, the sermon series on Receive the Holy Spirit, uh, and it's the last message of the series, and my sermon title today is An Altered Heart. An Altered Heart. Now, I still know how to spell. This is a wordplay, you know, alter, alter, and all that good stuff. If I have to explain it, it suddenly becomes not cool. So, an altered heart, an altered heart. Are you still with me, ladies and gentlemen? Yes. Now, we use the word altar pretty frequently around here, do we, yeah? We talk about this front portion of the church being an altar, like come forward to the altar, meaning this space in front of me. We talk about, we use language like, hey, you've got to rebuild the altars in your life. Right? But what does it actually mean? Right? We throw that language out so often. Right? And the word altars conjures up different images in your, in your mind. Some of you, it's like a flat thing. Some of you, it's a tall thing. Different images in your mind. But while our image and idea of an altar may differ, one thing is without question, is that the altar played a central role in the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, we see the altar being uh, a central key uh, fixture all through Old Testament. And I will argue later on in my message that it is so in the New Testament as well. Now, just a history on altars. Altars were built by many of God's people. The first altars were made by individuals with Noah being the first in Genesis chapter 8. And nearly every prominent person after him in the Old Testament made an altar at some point. Now, if I cite up we go through the genealogy like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Balaam, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, and Elijah. And I don't think I got that. I don't think this is a fully exhaustive, exhaustive list. You know, I think there are many more examples of altar builders in the Bible. 
Now, we mentioned earlier that one of the primary purposes of the altar was to memorialize or commemorate a significant moment with God. With me? But another key purpose of the altar, as we would glean in Scripture, is for the purpose of offering atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice. We spoke earlier about how Adam and Eve, because of their sin, no longer had direct access to God's presence. And as a result, the people in the Old Covenant could not come directly into the presence of God. Right? This is the story of the Bible. But because of their sin and needed sacrifice for the atonement of their sin, cleansing in order to enter into the presence of God. And they did so on the altar. Now, this was a huge part that altars played first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But it was also a place, the altar, for the children of Israel to offer a sacrifice of praise. Now, this is like extra sacrifice, you know, beyond the atoning sacrifice. It goes when uh, the people felt so grateful and so thankful for the Lord, and the Lord came through for them in a powerful way. They would erect an altar and offer a sacrifice of praise, a free will sacrifice in gratitude and worship of their Lord. Now, the children of Israel, they face many challenges, but one of the main challenges that we see all through the Bible is that this way of altars, of offering, of sacrifice, of thanksgiving and praise was not just the way the children of Israel interacted with their God. It was not just their way. It was not exclusive to them. But the pagan nations all around them had their own altars, their own gods, and their own sacrifices. And it was some sense, it was, it was like a challenge and a question to which which God is legitimate, which altar is legit, which area, which physical place actually had power, the presence of a divine being. Now, some of the ancient practices of these pagan nations, the altars surrounding them were real temptations for the children of Israel. Words like opulence, luxury, and sexual immorality would come to mind. And some of these altars were orgiistic places of debauchery. In many ways, these pagan altars represented deep sin-filled indulgences. And we find the children of Israel all through the story of scripture, often finding themselves drawn after these foreign gods and drawn after offering sacrifices to these foreign gods, worshipping these gods, participating in these pagan sin-filled indulgences. Are you still with me? Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 3 it says this, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Because here's the, the thing that happened. It was not just the physical places, the physical acts, the physical practices that crept into the lives of the children of Israel, but it crept into their very hearts. It wasn't just physical idols, external idols that was the issue. But through indulgence, their hearts became places for internal idols. And the children of Israel held idolatry deep in their heart. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Bracket. Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that control, that cannot hold 
water. They have exchanged their glorious God for vain, worthless idols. They've exchanged this idea of living water, of water that satisfies, that fulfills for broken cisterns, which cannot even hold water. Practices that will never truly satisfy. Lewis said, you know, C.S. Lewis said that, that human desire is so infinite, is so big, it proves to show that, hey, maybe we're made for something beyond this world. Nothing this world can satisfy. That human desire, that infinite human desire. And then maybe it's that fact, it's a sign that we are made for something unearthly beyond our world. Now, we read through this text, the children of Israel exchanged false gods, false worship, false offerings for true, authentic worship sacrifice and altars. Now the good news is that because of Jesus and the work of the cross, we can now have unlimited direct access to God and we no longer have to fall into the same cycles of idolatry anymore. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9 to 14 says this, taking you through a bunch of texts, but this is a good Bible, uh, like vitamins. And then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. And he sets aside the first, the first to establish the second, now the first being the law, to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest, this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he's talking about Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now that is the gospel. Now that is good news. That is the glorious news to which you and I have come to faith by, to which you and I are now charged with divine mission mandate to spread all through the world. That by one sacrifice, no longer are we subjected to the Levitical laws, nor are we subjected to the need of constantly uh, putting out atoning sacrifices, but by one sacrifice, that perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, we now have access the presence of God. We now get to be with Him forevermore. Are you with me? That is the gospel. However, many of us in the new covenant, you know, because of this intimacy that we now experience, this sense of freedom, you no longer have to carry a lamb on your back and, you know, and like cut it at the door in order to enter. You no longer have to do anything. You no longer have to use like an intermediary because of this freedom that we've experienced in the new, often we totally do away with the Old Testament, not just its practices, but the principles that govern those practices. We want absolutely nothing to do with the old, right? Some of us don't even read it, right? But the writers of the new, they don't do that. They don't do that. While the types and shadows of the old are fulfilled in Christ, the call remains the same through. And I made a case for that last week. The call to holiness, though it's very much present in the Old Testament, it's still relevant today. Yeah. Holiness is still a thing, still trendy. And it'll be trendy for all eternity. Amen, hallelujah. Uh, let's look at text, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, you know, as you come to him, the living stone 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Notice the language, being built into a spiritual house, a physical place. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Next slide, from Hebrews 13, 15, 16, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Now, we read through a bunch of texts. Here's where I'm landing. In the Old Testament, there was a special class of people, right? Priests, who would go into the temple and offer sacrifices to God on a physical altar. But in the New Testament, as we read in those texts, you are the priest, and your heart is the temple, the altar. You don't need an intermediary anymore to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. We have the outrageous privilege of making our heart an altar unto our God. Altars for the presence of God in your heart. This is our great privilege as New Covenant believers. We have this outrageous privilege, I can't emphasize it enough, to bless God, to honor God, and to minister to God. Think about that. The God of the universe, as, Matt, as Pastor Matt said, great and mighty, mysterious. We get to bless Him, we get to honor Him, and we get to minister to Him. That the actions of our being, of our heart, actually impacts the heart of God. Think about that. That He wants your heart and he is moved by your heart. Think about that. That's utterly profound, right? You know, in my heart, he finds delight, he finds joy, he desires to find a dwelling. Now for me, even just hearing that, hearing myself talk, it both wrecks me in a good way and it also, it also scares me, right? Because I know what's inside my heart. Now, I eat a lot of luncheon meat and, uh, and uh, you know. No, I'm just kidding. I, I stopped for a long time. Luncheon meat, man. Anyway. <laughs> um, yes, it's gone. Amy doesn't allow me to buy it anymore. Um, maybe once a year. Um, but, you know, I, I know what's in my heart, right? You know, beyond, uh, you know, cholesterol. Um, but I know what's in my heart. No, I know that there are many desires in there that are out of sync with God's kingdom. There are many desires. I know that there are, at times there is an unwillingness to obey, to follow God's word. I, I think inside, you know, at times there, there's pride, there's arrogance, there's this sense of independence that was taught to embrace even as a young boy. You know, be independent, do things on your own, you don't need anyone. That's the cultural mantra of our day. And you know, there are times that I do things with a hidden motive, a hidden desire. I want to get ahead. I want to look better, look smarter. And, uh, and that's in the, in the heart, you know. And if I can be very honest with you, there might be, you know, even at this point as a pastor for a few years now, you know, and follow Jesus, there might still be idolatry in my heart. There might still be, you know, sacred altars to which I've erected that draw gaze, devotion, and attention away from Jesus. I wonder, you know, what you can, whether you can, whether you relate with all that I'm saying, you know. God wants my heart, yes, but I... Too, I'm so familiar with the condition of my heart. And, you know, it, it wrecks me, but it also scares me at the same time. There's so much in there that 
know, if I had any control and power, I would rather him not see. But the good news of the gospel is that you know, God transforms us by his spirit. He transforms our heart. And the Bible tells us that he gives us a new heart by his spirit. So that's what we hope and long for. Now, you know, whenever we see a doctor, one of the first things that the doctor does is, you know, take a stethoscope and uh, listens to your heartbeat, right? Many of you have been to doctors, yes? Hopefully not recently. But, uh, you know, I need to stop making jokes. Come on, bad, bad Andre. Uh, yeah, stethoscope. And, uh, you know, it's so fun fact. You know, I, I read recently that the stethoscope uh, was invented by a Christian man who, uh, because of uh, wanting modesty for himself and for the ladies to which he had to examine, invented the stethoscope so he didn't have to put his heart onto the chest to hear the heartbeat. Come on, praise God for innovation and all that stuff. But, uh, yes, it's... Phew. Do you even know that, man? Oh, yeah. Wreck me. Um, you know, and the doctor uh, checks your heart because, you know, if there's something out of sync, out of whack with your heart, then nothing really actually matters at that point, right? You go right to that issue, the, the heart. And you know, I think the same it goes uh, in the spiritual. When the heart is out of sync, out of whack, nothing else really matters. You know? I think, I think it's, it's a heart that we need to constantly examine, constantly um, you know, even consider our spiritual condition uh, as we look at the heart. Now let's come back to the chapter I read in First Thessalonians chapter one. I'd love for this to uh, eventually become a vision for our community that will be one of faith, hope, and love, of power, conviction, hospitality, and the like. But uh, let's look at the next slide. Uh, next slide. Or first, yes, right there. And then uh, the last uh, paragraph. If you can draw your attention to that second line, it says this about the Thessalonian, Thessalon, Thessalonica church. <laughs> they tell people, they say of this committee, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true True God. And I want really want us to zone in on that verse. Turning from idols to serve God. You know, I'm reminded of uh, King Josiah. How many of you are familiar with King Josiah in the Bible? Josiah is one of my favorite characters. It's my baptism name, you know. It's my email, andrejosiahgmail.com. Please don't send me things. Questions, man, engineers are here for you all the time. But uh, Josiah, man, uh, that, that's, is, I think aside and other from King David is probably like the most righteous king in the Bible. Right, Josiah, you know, and the backstory of Josiah is that he became king at the age of eight. His father was an evil, ruthless king that was assassinated by his own people two years into his reign, and Josiah became king at eight years old. But his grandfather, Josiah, man, his grandfather, messed up guy, his name is Manasseh, should be called Mesnapsa, was godless. <laughs> no, that was not funny. And he was known as probably self-aware. He was known probably as the most evil king in all of Judah, and I'll ever argue all through the Bible, right? He promoted idolatry and pagan worship all through his kingdom, undoing the work of his father Hezekiah, and he even sacrificed one of his sons in fire to the idol Molech for a blessing. The Bible tells us that he did all that was displeasing before the Lord. He set himself as an enemy actively displeasing the Lord. That was Josiah's grandfather. Evil king, evil king. 
and then Josiah. Josiah didn't come from a heritage and a history of blessing. But scripture tells us that he, Josiah, followed in the ways of his father, David. David wasn't his actual father, but it was someone he saw as a biblical pattern, as a pattern for how to live life well, and he postured himself to live like David. At 26, the Bible tells us that his people found the book of the law, which had been cast aside and long forsaken. And when they read it to him, he was so moved and convicted, he tore his clothes, not going to demonstrate, and he went on what I'll describe. You can look through first. He went on what I'll describe as like a pagan altar tearing rampage. He just like tore it all up and he cleaned house and he restored worship. He restored sacrifices, you restored all these things that the Lord had commanded. Now, it's easy for us to disconnect with the story, right? Please don't tear down other people's stuff. But we have to know, right, even as we read the story, that the physical idols weren't really the problem. It was the fact that these physical idols, these pagan practices, crept into the hearts of God's people. And they began to build idols, and I'll suggest to you that whatever idols are in your heart, you will eventually erect altars for those idols. Whatever has a place in your heart becomes your heart's desire. You will build an altar to offer sacrifice and praise to that idol. And that was the, that's the issue. God isn't after physical space. He's after your hearts. It's all consistent through Scripture. He's after the hearts of His people. Now, even as we talk about the heart as the altar, I'm coming to a landing on this whole altar thing, I wonder what idols are idols of our age that we have entertained and given the real estate of our hearts to. I wonder what idolatry looks like in our day and age. It's probably not throwing babies into the fire, but I'm so aware, so cognizant that even today, even in the new covenant, we, the children of God, are still prone to wonder. Our hearts are deceitful. We're still prone to longing for things that offer temporary gratification, things that contradict God's will and intent for our lives. And I wonder today, what are the idols of our age? What are some things that preoccupy us, that keep us up, that pull away our affections and devotions away from God? What are things, ideas that we have given ourselves to that stop us from fully giving ourselves to God and His ways. Now, when we think of idols, we often think of it as being something like blatantly in your face immoral, right? We think of like the blatant, gross, grave sin. But I want to expand your definition of idolatry by a bit today. Because really, idolatry often comes in the form of good things. Good things that are part of God's will and intent for your life that you have come to prefer over God. If the gift is not awakening a sense in you that the giver of that gift is greater than the gift itself, then that gift is becoming an idol. Yeah. I know, tongue twister, but yeah. are you with me? Now, some immediate idols, even as I talk about idols of the age and what are some things that pull our affection and gaze away from the Lord, some things that come to mind are like money, sex, power, 
uh, unbridled ambition, these things, uh, we, we, we hear messages and language and seminar on, on it often, and uh, something that we will, we will love to dive into later on in the year, even as we expound on the theology of work. I think those are pretty obvious and self-explanatory, but today I would like to end off with exposing three idols of the heart that are common, especially in first world Christians. Y'all, you people, and me people, and are sadly largely accepted, welcomed, and tolerated even in churches. And the reason being is that these are often very subtle. And for the most part, these are often not explicitly immoral. But if we examine them closely, the contradiction is so clear. And it's, and you know, a way to look at idolatry is also by our preferences, where we prefer one over the other, where we prefer this good thing over the God thing. That is idolatry. And where we like Josiah today, go on an idol-tearing rampage and get rid of these sacred idols, sacred altars that we have erected in our hearts and prepare God's room and set apart this place, this heart, as a dwelling place for the Almighty. He wants your heart, not a small portion, all of it. Will we be like Josiah? And, uh, you know, I have the list out, but because of time, I won't be able to get through the entire list. I'll just go straight to the last point. But these three uh, areas of idolatry, of preferences that we've come to adopt uh, as first world Christians are pragmatism over passion, this idea of being practical over being fully, wholeheartedly given, devoted to the Lord. Now, I have nothing against pragmatism and being practical, but I've noticed that in many occasions in my life, you know, I've come to favor the practical approach over the word of the Lord. And I look through all scripture and I find that like faith as displayed and as talked about in the Bible is often the most illogical, irrational thing. And for many of us, we've come to live lives of such control. We can predict and set our lives for ourselves. But faith often looks like uncertainty, a lack of control. Well, no, I wouldn't even say it often. Faith looks like uncertainty and a lack of control. And that's where faith is actually exhibited and proven. Second thing that we've come to love over the way of God is progress over presence. Now, we think about that story in Exodus where Moses says that if you do not come with us, your presence doesn't go with us, do not take us up from here. You know, in many ways, you know, we've come, you know, in, as a first world church, people in the marketplace who uh, really, really embrace this whole idea of taking the marketplace for Jesus and have success, blessing and favor and being able to go like, hey, you know, it's Jesus that brings all these things. Well, you know, success is a good thing, right? You know, we do not fault success. But for many of us, success has become our God. We've come to favor success and progress over his presence. And the last uh, part, and this is what we want to dive into, is that as a people, and it's especially so relevant in our day, we've come to embrace self-preservation over philanthropy. Self-preservation over philanthropy. Now, when we think of philanthropy, right, the image that comes to mind is someone who is really, really, really rich, capable, and it comes with the idea of large sums of money generously donated to causes and other initiatives. This is our idea of philanthropy. It's something exclusive only to the rich and those who have a bit more time. But the idea of philanthropy is incredibly powerful because at its root, 
Philanthropy is simply love. Something that we are all capable and commanded to do. If we break up the word philanthropy, it breaks up to the word phil and anthropos. Phil meaning love and anthropos meaning mankind. It's the love of mankind. And as a church, we have come to favor self-preservation and we call it wisdom. We call it measured responses. We call it loving myself before I love other people. Over loving mankind. Over philanthropy. The cultural mantra is this, every man for himself, but the Christian narrative subverts it. In 216 AD, history notes of a plague that devastated the Roman Empire. The wealthy fled the cities. Anyone thought to have symptoms of the plague were immediately tossed out the streets to die. But the Christians in that moment where people were abandoning ship gathered the people who were tossed out on the streets to die to nurse and care for them, putting their lives at risk. It was said of these Christians that they truly believed that they had eternal life and therefore they were willing to give this short time on earth away in service of Christ. Um, um, a buddy of mine put together this uh, entire article of radical charity displayed in the early church. It's on saltandlight.com uh, or .org. I encourage you to look it up. But there's some quotes uh, from the Bishop of Alexandria in reference to the actions of the Christians in that, in that day. He says this about the people and the Christians in that day. Many who nurse others to health died themselves, thus transferring their death to themselves. The best of our own brothers lost their lives in this way. Some presbyters, deacons, and laymen, a form of death based on strong faith and piety that seems in every way equal to martyrdom. He says this about them as well. They would also take up the bodies of the saints, close their eyes, shut their mouths, and carry them on their shoulders. They would embrace them, wash, and dress them in burial clothes, and soon receive the same services themselves. Now, these are not people that are disconnected from us. These are the pillars, the founding, the foundations of what we call the church. You are built on that foundation. But tragically, we have veered away. You know, it's like a leaning thing, whatever that thing is. Will Willeman, one of my favorite quotes, he says this about uh, the church. He says, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. We have all heard this saying that there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. And often in the world we live in, most wouldn't read the first four. All through history, the true test and revealer of the church's maturity are periods of crisis and controversy. Crisis is either an opportunity to redefine or affirm your belief in God. Controversy is often an opportunity to either redefine or affirm your belief in people. Now, even in this time, seeing what we've seen in the last couple of days especially, I know that there's mixed emotions represented in this room. Some of you are angry, disappointed by the events that you have witnessed in the last couple of days. Uh, some of you are fearful, scared, wondering where is the relevancy of faith in this moment, in this time. Some of you are wondering, you know, what is all this hysteria and what does it actually mean to be the church in this time? And some of you, you know, really relate with this whole self-preservation thing, that you lean more self-preservation 
than philanthropy. Today, definitely on a different scale, and I've mentioned this at the start, we have an opportunity as a church to shine our light. Yes. Just as the church did in 260 AD and all through history, we get to participate in a divine rhythm and divine mission of retreating and experiencing God, His love, and being scared to bring that love to a world that so desperately needs it. One of the ways you know that God is at work in a community is that they bear a characteristic trait that is in line with the kingdom of God and out of sync with the world. Think of Daniel living in exile, being resolute in faith and obedience to God. One of the ways you know God is at work on a community, His hand is upon a community, is that they bear a distinctive, differentiated character trait. It's unlike the world. Yeah, but it's in sync with the kingdom of God. And I think back upon that entire chapter that we read at the start, that church in Thessalonica, they were known for faith, hope, love, power, and conviction. What will the church in this moment, in this time of history, be known for? Or would we rather be known for what we are against? Now, I would like to call the church to two responses in this time, and I want us to be known for these two responses in this day and age. First of all, I want us to be a people that extend grace wherever possible. I know many of us have strong opinions against people who are displaying certain behaviors, but I would like us to, to consider this, to give grace to people who honestly have their hope anchored in nothing. You and I, we have the distinct privilege through the work of Jesus to have His Spirit living in us to renew us, restore us, revive us. He who is hope is living in us. And we have a blessed assurance. But many in the world today have none. I would like us to consider that, no, that even as people are fearful for their lives, panic buying, that they, these are symptoms and signs of hopelessness. And for us to have grace. And don't judge people for the fear that is produced by a lack of hope just because you have one. And instead, give grace. Give grace to those who don't know any better. Give grace to those you disagree with. Give grace to aunties who follow you fake news. Give grace to our politicians. <laughs> we all have those, right? Yes. I mean, like 17 chat groups. Give grace to our healthcare workers. Give grace. Give grace. I want us to be known as a people of grace. Next thing I want us to be known for is to be a people marked with a profound sense of peace, unexplainable peace. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Now, uh, Ed Friedman was an ordained rabbi, family therapist, and leadership consultant, and he coined the term a non-anxious presence. Now, he has this great leadership book called The Failure of Nerve. I highly encourage you to read that. It's such amazing, so relevant for this day and age that we're living in. And he talks about how uh, leaders ought to be a non-anxious presence. And what he's describing is a person who is able to not be drawn into the fray of anxiety swirling around him or her, a non-anxious presence. I read that early in seminary training that many pastors-to-be learn a curious this, this phrase, that professors will instruct them to be a non-anxious presence. That is the one person in the room who maintains a peaceful presence and posture when everyone around them is losing it. We have one half of the equation done. Everyone is really losing it. 
right? I think about a story where Jesus uh, and his disciples encountered a storm, right? Familiar story, you know, he was on the boat, Peter walked on water and all that kind of stuff and threatened their lives. And they called out to him, right? And his disciples frantically accused him of not caring. Why are you not caring? Why are you not participating in our anxious moment right now? Jesus, in that moment, modeled what it means to be a non-anxious presence, right? In a familiar story, he gave and he spoke an authoritative word of peace over the storm, and then it was calm. In a climate of anxiety, of panic, of hysteria, Jesus released peace, and the storm was calm, it was quelled. And let us not forget the words of Jesus over his church. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I'd like to put it to all of us that the same peace that comes to some, that same peace that stills our heart, that same peace that gives us hope is the same peace we are called to release wherever we go. In this moment in time, we have an opportunity to be a non-anxious presence in a climate of anxiety. I'd like to put it to you that he who has the most peace and hope has the most influence. Today, the world is looking for those who are governed by a sense of peace and hope in a climate of anxiety. Are you with me? Peace isn't this ethereal thing. Isn't the absence of conflict. Isn't just harmony. It's a very limited understanding of peace, but peace is the person of Jesus. The Bible tells us that it's the prince of peace that will crush the head of Satan. Our peace wars. Our peace quells. Our peace calms. Our peace is not retreating into a bunker. Our peace is active. Our peace goes out. That's why Jesus tells us, like, go into houses and let your peace come upon them. What will it look like for us to be mobilized in all the, into all the NTUCs in the midst of hysteria, anxiety, and panic and go, peace be still? <laughs> you laugh, but I'm serious. I'm serious. What will it look like for us to be mobilized as a faith community into areas of darkness, of anxiousness, and release the peace of God? What will it look like? It looked like the church, being the church. I'm going to come to a close shortly, but uh, I know I remember a time where there was a drought season in, in Reading, right? Uh, you know, I lived in Reading for, for, for many years, and uh, I remember driving out to a, a dam. Uh, you know, we don't have dams here, but do we have dams? We do. Marina Bay Brush is a dam. Yeah, yeah we, we have a dam, you know. I'm not cussing. D-A-M. Dam. Uh, <laughs> dam. Uh, so I, I went there, and, uh, you know, no, we usually like to go there because it's really scenic. And, uh, and as we're driving, I was just appalled by what I saw. You know, I, was, uh, I saw that the lake uh, next to the dam, were, you could see almost the entire base of the lake because there was, we were in such drought and the water was all gone. And you could see, uh, you know, there's very little body of water, less water than actual land. And, you know, as we drove up closer, we saw this, like, ugly, like, scare-folding structure that are stuck on the water. Now, I've been to the dam many, many times, but I've never saw that structure, right? And that structure emerged its ugly head even as the drought happened, you know, and the water level uh, dipped, and then the structure began to emerge, right? Where there was a drought, you know, then that structure emerged. What's my point? Tragedy, crisis, and controversy. It's not something to be taken lightly and desired, but it itself can be a gift. 
It's a gift that will expose the inner architecture of our hearts, our trust structures, our motivations, our source of strength, and our idols. In this climate of anxiety, of testing, these idols of pragmatism over passion, progress over presence, self-preservation over philanthropy, these idols to which we may or may not have entertained and erected altars for in our lives, will come to light. Will come to light. And my prayer is that may we be like Josiah in this moment in time, as the idols come to light, as our trust structures are reviewed, our lack of hope, our anxious ways are reviewed, may we be like Josiah and go on an idol-tearing-down rampage. And then may we then be light in the midst of darkness, hope in the midst of hopelessness, be people that will contend for the miraculous power of a Lord to be displayed on our planet. May we be the church in this time. Let the church be the church once again.